Welcome to Non-Fungible Rebels, a podcast where creators, tech, internet culture, crypto and marketing meet each other. It's me, Annie Alexander, and in each episode, me and the Rebels will have a real unscripted talk, share genuine opinions, and share raw emotions. Should we start? Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Non-Fungible Rebels podcast. It's me, Annie Alexander, and today I have a really uh, special guest. Uh, his name is Paul Dylan Annis. Is I, I kind of, you know, came across an article that Vitalik Buterin wrote, and he mentioned Paul's name. To be completely honest, I had forgotten that we had connected at one point and because when I opened the Twitter I saw that we had a very brief conversation before that and he's also the author of Absolute Essentials of Ethereum and he he writes a lot about the Ethereum culture and values as well so I I can predict that we're gonna talk a lot about Ethereum today and welcome to the podcast Paul nice to have you over yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it it's interesting to sort of, you know, in this space, what I have discovered is that there are loads of people who are blockchain maxes, right? They stick to one blockchain. They are big fans of that specific blockchain and they are not very accept. They don't really accept the others, right? And, and by now, with the time, we had so many blockchains emerge in different shape or form and it's, it's, it's become already quite diverse, right? And then we have different communities and crowds navigating towards different blockchains. So Ethereum came along, um, after the Bitcoin blockchain. So it was the second. And I guess my question would be, let's start by understanding why did it happen? Why was it created? What was the purpose of it? Because there was already one. Why did we need another one? Yeah, the, the story really goes back to very early Bitcoin culture. So let's say early 2010s, the Bitcoin community, it's more or less made up of two communities at that point. The cypherpunks, which most people have heard of, the digital privacy activists, and then libertarians, so people who are interested in Austrian economics, the, the gold bugs, all that side of it. And in that early community, it's the, the objective of what Bitcoin is supposed to be is very straightforward. It's just we need a digital cash, as they used to say at that time. It's now digital gold, but originally it was actually digital cash to be used in coffee shops, etc. And there wasn't any wider ambition beyond that. Bitcoin itself was seen as a big enough mission. But pretty soon you start to get people in the early forums in Bitcoin talk who begin asking the question, could we do something more with blockchains? And there are various early projects like colored coins where they take Bitcoins and they mark them. And then they represent a real world asset. So actually very early versions of say NFTs and ordinals now actually is can trace its lineage back to that, that those attempts. And this was called at the time Bitcoin 2.0. You would also hear people mention blockchain beyond Bitcoin. There was various different ideas that were being thrown around. And there were other blockchains. So before Ethereum, there's all kinds of altcoins, but they're almost all following the Bitcoin model. So like Litecoin, Dogecoin are early blockchains, but they're 
variations on Bitcoin that change some parameters. That's that's all they're doing. So they don't actually change the model of what the blockchain is, but they they introduce new mechanisms. So the issuance is is larger in both of those. And then with with Vitalik in particular, he was writing for Bitcoin Weekly first, and then he helped co-found Bitcoin Magazine. So this is a bit ironic because, of course, now we have Bitcoin maximalism, and Vitalik is not someone who is probably treated fairly in Bitcoin Magazine very often, but he is one of the the co-founders of it. Um, And he was actually working on things like colored coins. He was traveling around the world, and he was helping do things like their white paper and improving their documentation. So he was in the mix around those kinds of people. And while he was working on ways in which you could make Bitcoin do more things, more interesting things, he basically came up with the idea of, well, instead of having, instead of trying to work within the, the boundaries of Bitcoin, why not just make something that's a more general purpose blockchain where it is, it's actually up to the, the developer to create whatever uh, kind of application that they want. So that's where he gets to this idea of the world computer model of a blockchain. So Ethereum, it's not the, I would say it's the second concept of a blockchain. It's the second major innovation. In fact, it's probably the only one since then. It's like Bitcoin, Ethereum. We haven't really had the new blockchain type yet. Most blockchains at this point, I would say, are following Ethereum's model more or less. And that happens in November of 2013 is when Vitalik comes up with the white paper and he sends it to 13 developers and then they launch it in Bitcoin Miami. And then it's July July uh, of 2015 when Ethereum actually launches. So this is all, all deep history, but um, that, that's the general story. It's, it's frustration, I guess, maybe at the, the limits of what Bitcoin can do. And then deciding the solution is actually to create, like to reimagine what the blockchain is itself, to be a world computer as opposed to being a ledger. So ledger mm-hmm. versus uh, computer is the the main main model. And now the the great irony is that Bitcoin is actually becoming more like Ethereum. It's almost going back to all these early ideas that people pioneered in Bitcoin 2.0. Okay, makes sense. So so basically, yeah, I mean, if, if that was created in order to get away from the limitations and be able to do more things with that new blockchain, which are the things that kind of, you know, came across as, you know, additional beneficial features or, you know, functionality of the blockchain that didn't exist in the Bitcoin one. Yeah. So in Bitcoin, you can do, you can do a lot more things in Bitcoin than people are aware of, but it's, it's more, the, the problem with Bitcoin is that you can make it do things, but it's always a lot of work. So it, there's a lot more steps mm-hmm. that, are, that, are, that are involved. What Ethereum introduces is, is really just the idea that, you know, you can just have a, you can write your code, you can write your application, you know, in Solidity before you put on, on Ethereum, and then you deploy it to the Ethereum blockchain and it becomes this code that you can interact with. And that's really what most decentralized applications are just code contained in a contract account in the ethereum blockchain so there's a lot more flexibility so it's much easier to write an erc20 smart contract for fungible tokens so that's why we have so many different tokens and anybody can create them at any point whereas in bitcoin what you would have to do is what exists today which are ordinals and inscriptions where you're like each unit is actually like marked as a as something else like each small unit of bitcoin is marked as a token and in ethereum you just generate this database basically of tokens that are then transferred through from person to person 
And the other ones, the three major dApps that I tend to think of are DAOs, DeFi, and NFTs. So decentralized autonomous organizations for organization. That's something that's much easier on Ethereum, although there were DAO-ish things in Bitcoin. And some people even argue that Bitcoin is a DAO. Uh, decentralized finance, so you have the, the financial uh, aspect of it. And then also the uh, NFTs, non-fungible tokens, so the artistic side. So I think all of the... Like Bitcoin is pretty good at its main use case. It does one thing and one thing well, or at least up until a certain yeah. point. So just transferring money and allowing you to custody it. That's changing now. But even then, it's more like what the ordinals people are doing is, is they're really pushing the boundaries of Bitcoin. Whereas with Ethereum, all of the, like the, the DAOs, DeFi, NFTs are relatively easy to do. So I think it's the ease of being able to create things is what the say the the main differentiator is and that's why ethereum became so popular suddenly you could do much more with way less attrition involved yeah makes sense and and i think that's why many people started doing many different things on on top of ethereum and the the first probably most crazy waves of, of things happening were around 2016 2017 when the ico boom came and parallel to that, we, that we also had CryptoKitties, the, the two major volumes of transactions coming into place at the same time. So that was exciting. But specifically about the ICOs, I mean, it started as a really, really great idea. And and it from the technical perspective, it worked amazingly well. I mean, I, I have witnessed it firsthand and amazing too. But the human side of it came along and completely destroyed the whole concept of it. And as a result, because of all those scams and because of everything that happened in the market, the whole idea of the ICO died off because we, we as humans spoiled the whole thing, although technically it worked perfectly well. So so was that something that could have been forecasted? Like did, when that whole boom and wave came along, like do you think it was something that was planned and people could know in advance that this is what's going to uh, be happening on that blockchain or it just kind of organically just, you know, blew up by itself? Yeah, I, I think if you were, so definitely amongst academic circles, so people I would have known and uh, even a little bit my like older, earlier writing, this is something I would occasionally uh, express as a fear, which is you can, it, like Bitcoin and Ethereum, it, especially in early Bitcoin and early Ethereum, which I would even say is basically marked from the naive idealist idealistic phase up until the DAO and ICOs. So at that point, people are still talking about the idea of it's going to be the technology which disintermediates humans as much as possible. And if you disintermediate the humans, then the corruption will disappear because it's algorithmically, it's an algorithmic authority as yeah. opposed to like a legal authority. And this is going to be good because people are bad and people are corrupt. So we're, we're just, we're minimizing trust as much as possible. Um, yeah. One of the terms that was uh, thrown around quite a bit then would have been trustless, like blockchains trustless, are trustless. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Prima Vera de Filippi has another one. She says uh, a confidence machine that you could trust in the code, all these different ways mm -hmm. of seeing it. And you saw that with the DAO. The DAO is autonomous. That's how people used to talk about the uh, the DAO. Um, but I think if you were around, if you had like familiarity with online cultures, which is something I would have had preceding crypto, it wasn't my first rodeo with online communities, um, you you could definitely see that at some point, 
something with so, with so much money flowing around and with such a loose social layer at that point, effectively just the people who by chance happened to be around at that point, that as soon as it brought in new, basically the process is always with Bitcoin, a new new community comes in and then they become like that, that eventually leads to the Bitcoin civil war. And in Ethereum's case, it's people are drawn in by the money, the quick money and the permissionless nature and that then, that then eventually corrupts the, let's say, the, the social layer in the ecosystem. The degen, the rise of the degen becomes normalized behavior. And the, 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 the particular value, I would say, that is in question here is permissionlessness. So permissionlessness is one of those classic cypherpunk values. And this is the one I've, I'm personally most interested in and always is worried about because permissionless basically says if you build like Ethereum and Bitcoin or any other blockchain, by by principle in how it's designed, cannot exclude people. So you can't exclude people from using it. No permission is required. And this sounds like a great value in the beginning because you're effectively saying something like people are excluded from the traditional financial institutions yeah. because of NYC, the global South. And it's a, it's a positive way of thinking about things. But then the, yeah. the, the shadow of that, of course, is that if anybody can use Ethereum, anybody can use Ethereum. So... Any the bad players person. can come in as well, yeah. And that that's exactly what happened. And and there's no there's no counter mechanism by which to you can't punish people because that again would go against say credible neutrality. So we have these values which are on one side like very I think they're good values to aspire to, but then like most human behaviors, they 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 have a dark side and a shadow side. And we're, we're the the ICOs was the, our first warning, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it was, um, it was, and and I think the first warning didn't really do much because then we had all these other waves, and it felt like everything was repeating the same way. Because after the ICOs, we had the IDOs and the DeFi summer, and then we had the hype with NFTs. And when you look at it, yes, I mean, probably the packaging and probably the narrative is slightly different, just from the quote unquote marketing perspective. But overall, it it felt like it was the same journey over and over again, finishing by a crypto winter. So to me, it was like, okay, uh, when are we going to learn? When are you, we going to understand that this is the same thing and the same cycle going over and over again with different flavors, with probably new crowds coming in, but essentially ending the same way because of the same mistakes we keep making. So I think it, it also goes back to culture because I feel like also the the fact that in in the crypto communities there is this big acceptance of people being anonymous and kind of hiding behind the screen and being the keyboard warriors without any consequences that enables many people do way more than they would have forced doing in in different environments or circumstances right so so yeah, I know exactly what you mean. But looking at that, like obviously uh, we had all these waves, obviously they all ended the same way. I feel like probably a new wave is is warming up, probably we'll have another one. Do you think we'll keep circling like this uh, over and over again or like what is needed to actually ch- change that pattern? Yeah, I I do think for at least for this cycle I think it's the the same again. So it's a, a true detective moment. Uh, time is a flat circle situation. That I, th- I think everybody is aware of that. There's a, there's a sense in which 
after the let's say SBF moment and, and the markets really unravel that anybody who was remaining had this idea okay all of the like the really bad actors the big bad actors are being swept out and they're going to get arrested and then during this time what we're going to do is rebuild so we're going to figure out ways to you know maybe invent some new primitives maybe something like uh DAOs or nfts from so the like the previous cycle is basically born out of people really doing DAOs, really doing nfts and really doing uh DeFi. Uh, but in this one, I feel like there wasn't, there hasn't been really anything that matches that major new innovation. Vitalik has posted about this before that we've probably reached the limits of what can be created in terms of the the types of uh, DApps are broadly set. We 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 roughly know what the terrain is going to mm. be, so we can't really rely on the the tech innovation story, which a lot of people in the the wider ecosystem more or less think that that's how everything should be done that we just eventually some tech uh, will come along and then we'll, everyone will get excited and that will bring in the, the retail people but i think everyone under the hood knows that the the cultural issues haven't been solved whether that means the external reputation of crypto which remains terrible as someone who is in a business school and you know teaches young people and you know very, like has to basically deal with the people outside crypto quite often and and their attitudes toward it I would say it's it's just as bad, you know, like it hasn't been solved, hasn't been seen as in any way cleaned up. And then there's the the other question which people don't like to raise, which is that question of culture. People in in Ethereum don't necessarily like to raise the idea of should Ethereum have a specific culture? Should there be some values like let's say would it be preferable if we had a more regen public goods dominant narrative? And that that represented what Ethereum is, because the the paradox of Ethereum is that it in the beginning it was created right. Just the message is it's a decentralized platform for applications. So that's how Vitalik presents in the white paper. And there's never there's nothing in the white paper that tells you what Ethereum itself is supposed to be for in a social, cultural, or political sense. So it's neutral. And so anybody can do uh, whatever they want, and that 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 that's you know a useful, important message. But it appeals really to the developers and the environment, the uh, developers and the engineers. So they're just building something neutral. Whatever happens on it, like that's not their fault. But I think that that doesn't really get you very far once you begin to encounter different types of subcultures as they emerge. So I would say, yeah. So a good example of this is Ethereum alignment. People hate this term of, of Ethereum alignment because they see it as some kind of group is trying to introduce a culture which would help us get out of our reputational you know problem so there, there's like a there's a paradox here where we want our culture to be uh, like we would like our culture to be a good culture that people would admire and join mm -hmm. and come into our shared commons and our shared space but we're not willing to proactively develop or you know stand behind a certain vision of what ethereum should be for because we feel that that would be like a centralizing force maybe or you know there's there's some kind of suspicion yeah. of, of the of anybody who proposes this and i've done this many times in the past where i've tried to advocate for like if you leave it if you leave a void of culture then what you will get is the the DJs. whatever happens yeah. yeah, and the in, in, in to uh, the inability to critique anybody is very pernicious in Ethereum. So when like people are mm -hmm. like when a DeFi protocol is hacked or collapses, there's an almost ironic detachment. It's just accepted. It's normal. It's funny. It's amusing. 
you can't really condemn it. And you just have to hope that traditional legal repercussions fall or Zach BTC, XBT, sorry, exposes them. But there's, there's no mechanism by which you can say that this is like misaligned to where we would want to go. So yeah, so I think that that's the problem. We, we have a culture void, more or less. Yeah, uh, I think it's interesting you mentioned that because I remember during the DeFi summer when it was just starting and many people kind of were not used to to all these decentralized exchanges and how to use them, etc. And there were lots, there was a big rush for the builders as well to ship something. So there were all these exploits where exploits were happening very often, more often than usual, probably because of the speed and uh, of the shipment, etc. But the interesting thing was, and it's it's interesting you mentioned that because it it had kind of impressed me a little bit uh, at that sense was that when those were happening, people's reaction was like, "Hey, if you can't stomach it, you shouldn't be in DeFi." Like, okay, you're in DeFi; it's risky. That's how it is. Like, if you can't accept it or you can't feel like that's the, it felt like it was the norm. And to me, it was a bit weird. I was like, okay, it means that no one really has to bear any responsibility because if people accept it, then you don't have the incentive to try harder. You don't have the incentive to maybe audit it one more time or, or spend uh, a, an extra hour to go over it once again, right? So, so that was something that was happening a lot back then. And, and it's still around to some degree. It's kind of, you know, well, shit happens and mm-hmm. then we move on and we forget and, and then it happens again exactly the same way because the first time we didn't react to it, right? Yeah, there's a so like with the the DJ and culture in particular. So I would say the DJ and culture of DeFi definitely still exists, but it, it's the more visible version is probably the the meme coin. The, the meme coin Solana, I would say in particular, really suffers from this. And I think like Solana's direction will like be a terrible direction because of this because they've effectively just embraced the idea of we are the meme coin chain you know we're the, we're to get 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 rich quick kind of chain and that that's an appealing narrative for a while but eventually yeah. uh, there will be a lineage of of things that will have happened which will have poisoned people's relationship and that's something that in ethereum is is there there's there's a a lineage of things that have happened in defi which has basically made people nihilistic about it so anybody who's been around for a while they have a little bit of survivor bias. Maybe they did well with you know a couple of projects or an airdrop, so they think they're kind of like specialists in decentralized finance, uh, nah. such a thing can exist. <laughs> and then if anybody new comes along, and you know they when they're told about DeFi, what are they told? It's a like a it's a you know accessible finance. It's a there's an ideology that people will say on stage and at events and when they're trying to get people in. But as soon as you're in the door, it's like none of that matters. Actually, it's all just complete naked nihilistic speculation and you need to be a cowboy who can handle anything that, and you know it, that's it's so a very, true uh, that yeah yeah yeah, I mean, uh, yeah sorry go ahead yeah no i was just you know thinking about like that whole story and the narrative and the way it was put out there it's like you know we're these you know shiny knights that came in to save all these poor people who are not served by the banks and don't have access to financial services etc but if you remember what was happening during the defi summer in the very you know first months i don't imagine any of those people they were trying to have 
being able to, first of all, use it because it was so complicated, even for average crypto person in the very beginning. And also to be able to port those gas fees, which were like crazy. So, so to me, it was like, yeah, you tell this nice story and it sounds really great. But in practice, like who are the people who make money? Who are the people who actually use it and who benefit from it? None of them is any of the crowd that you're claiming to be saving by creating this. So there was this big mismatch, but because as long as people make money, they don't really care. So no one really voiced out or kind of called them out about, hey guys, like what you're saying is completely bullshit. It doesn't really work that way. But it was a nice story. And and I think the appealing part of that story, apart from that, it's it sounds very noble, was that whole narrative of fuck the banks. So <laughs> that was something that people resonated with a lot. And, and that that's what kind of brought many legends into the space as well. So, so yeah, I guess that's the DeFi story I, kind of. <laughs> just on thing. that, like that idea of, yeah, like it's, it's about fuck the banks. Um, you can tell this beautiful story of there's like the, you know, crypto more or less originates in the, collapse of financial institutions so bitcoin is a response to that and then yeah. like ethereum contributes to this with DeFi, which gives you all the other products that you couldn't access but in the end i mean what we we effectively have built is a more you know a more like accessible degenerated version of that it's a it's an accelerated version of all the worst things that existed in the the system we were trying to escape it's now just like easier to uh, to access it yeah. and in a way that's why i sort of appreciate the solana and this is something i'm currently just interested in solana and meme coins i wrote an article about the meme coin grift and how it threatens ethereum's reputation not too long ago and that in some way they're they're purists of just like they're just outright saying that there is nothing to this. Like they don't, they don't reference the the bigger story. They they don't talk about you know bringing people in the oh, unbank. Yeah. They're just they're just playing around with like meme coins. And I have joked in the past, and I'm semi semi serious about this. It's something I like to throw out if I'm at a DeFi event that uh, we should cordon off DeFi. We should just you know kind of put a put a fence around it and just kind of like leave them there for a while. You know, just just to kind of like tease them that like a lot of what of our a lot of our problems. Are like you know could be solved if we could just like cordon off DeFi and the, the worst excesses and just leave all the the doubt like the more you know public goods people to build things just as a provocation because I think their provocation which they wouldn't necessarily see it as this is that their provocation is all of this is meaningless except to make like a, a quick book uh, by launching a meme coin so my counter provocation is but what we should do then is like you know cordon you off so you don't make make don't keep bringing us down. Yeah, I, I see what you mean. I mean, about the meme coins, I think it kind of, meme coins seemed like the organic continuation of the NFT hype because to me personally, what happened was NFTs worked because they were fun, because they were related to stuff that was human. It wasn't very techy. It was about art, about music, about things that people understood and cared about. So, and it, it wasn't serious. So it was really cool, right? The problem with the NFT hype was that apart from the, you know, NFT art, which was great, we ended up with these 10,000 PFP 0 0.08 mint collections, which was like, okay, yeah, 
they they were there. But what they became eventually was they became like, you know, shitcoin speculation just with pictures. So what what the trade of what like it felt like the DeFi dungeons came in and started treating these ten thousand PFP NFTs as a fungible tokens to trade. So then the art didn't matter. Then you know nothing really mattered. It was all about just a token with a nice picture. So then it kind of it felt like there was this full circle and going back and like okay if we're treating it like a Shit kind with a picture, let's just go and do a shit kind with a picture. Why even bother with NFTs anymore? And that kind of, to me, that was the organic development. And then we ended up with meme coins, which at the end of the day is just a shit kind with a picture. And then memes are part of that culture and the language that people speak. Um, and so everyone can be content creator with with their memes and and be participating in the whole thing so it's easier to engage the crowds and and make them resonate with the whole thing because they're already creating memes anyway right so that's the way i look at that yeah i mean the thing about nfts so is that like if you if you, if you think about the biggest nft projects that basically launched the the precursors to the, the 10,000 PFP model. CryptoPunks is, it is an original creation. They're, they're, you know, they, they came up with something new, this, you know, yeah. script, which allowed them to generate these, the punks with different uh, attributes. There's like a little bit of creative programming that was involved in that. They, they were the first to see it. And they created something uh, interesting and fun to such an extent that most people didn't know about CryptoPunks, you know, for a while. It took people a little while to, to realize, except for a few people who bought hundreds of them and, you know, are now like fabulously wealthy. But in a way which I would be like, that that's the way it probably should be. And then even Board APR Club, as much as it's maligned, um, there was a genuine attempt with that project, which I would see as really the first 10,000 PFP project. And not in the sense of being literally the first one, but the first one where it's perfected as an art. And, you know, they, they did have this whole idea of the, the club that you could join. And, you know, there was a story behind it. And the artwork, yep. even though now it's become generic, so the style that they, the, their, their style has been completely made generic. But at the time, it looked quality. Like, it looked like high quality. They got real artists in to, to try and make something here. And there's a few artists involved in that, like more than I think most people think. But then, you know, like, it's, it's amazing how quickly then that there was no real attempt then to try pursue what would be what would push the medium forward uh, in interesting new directions. So there is a, there's an alternative history where people are experimenting with variations on you know what what collections should look like, how they should be formed, what the art should look like, uh, and instead it got completely trampled over by the, the 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 yeah reduced down to meme coin status immediately. So. I, I do. I do see NFTs as a, a sort of sad tale in, in a way. There's a lot of lost potential there. There, there are definitely people yeah. who create smart contract art, which is definitely pretty interesting still. But yeah, how quickly it happened, I think, was a little bit shocking. Uh, one, one thing I will definitely single out is NFTs brought in people who absolutely would not have come into crypto before that. So when I yes. first start going to NFT events just to see what was happening, having you know a room of people where there's a mix of men and women. And there's people there who are like stylish and like maybe you know not really into crypto in the the old school sense. And comparing it to my experiences before that, you know, it's it was night and day, especially early Bitcoin meetings where it was me and you know four yeah. other guys in, in, in a room in a pub somewhere. 
And yeah, and they also brought in the style. There was not a lot of style as in the the quality, the expectation of what your website would look like, what your project would look like was very low uh, until oh, yeah. NFTs came along. That brought in sure. creative people who looked at this and said, we, we can do better than this. This is, Even if we just have to teach them how to use Canva properly, uh, you know, this would be uh, a step up because it was really, really, really low quality. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm sort of like hoping that NFTs, like there is, there is definitely a, you could imagine that there is going to be some new interesting take on things. It's probably going to come from NFTs. It's more likely to come from NFTs than it's going to come from DeFi in my mind. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, probably. It, it's interesting you mentioned that because during when, when NFTs sort of started becoming a thing, I was working full time in DeFi and I was reaching the stage where I was like, oh, my God, like this is a soulless crowd. Like this is such a draining sort of emotionally state to deal with these people over and over again. People who care only about money, who talk only about price. It, it, it was just to me, I didn't really resonate with that crowd so much. So to me, it was like, OK, I need something for my soul parallel to my quote unquote day job. Right. And and I'm a fiction author. So. When the NFTs came along, I started spending a lot of time with NFT artists and those gatherings and crowds and divans. And and yeah, just as you de- uh, describe, it was like a, a fresh air, right? It was like something really kind of, you know, soothing. And and I was like, oh my God, I, I found my place. I found my tribe. This is so much nicer. Unfortunately, because of everything that happened, very similar to the ICO cycle, right? Like most of the NFT artists that were super happy to quit their nine to five soul sucking jobs to create um, full time with all those changes. They had to go back to work again, which was the sad part. But the community still stayed, and it's it's vibrant and and it's creative and it's diverse, as you said. And and I, I feel like that is the crowd that can generate really interesting ideas. And since you know I mentioned soulless, I remember in one of the Ethereum reports, Vitalik was mentioning about projects that have a soul. And I think he was referring that everything, all, most of the dApps are kind of revolving around the money aspect of it. And, and we need some projects that were not really about that and something else, something more soulful. Do you think we, we have that potential? Like, is something like that gonna be taking a bigger space in the ecosystem with the time or are there any soulful projects out there at the moment not many um, but that that's always been kind of true i think uh also i would also mention that i i think that was also a big experience for me of before nfts because i've been teaching the topic for so long so i i can have i've been around for a time when bitcoin was the only thing really that you could like be teaching or even like actually hanging around with and then ethereum and that was a big breath of fresh air because with the Ethereum people, there was a sense that they had other interests. So they weren't just you know interested in, in the money question. They had broader interests, Talik being the, the representative of that, really. And probably a big reason why we have any kind of interaction is based around that sort of like interest in that blockchain should be bigger than, than money. 
But then, yeah, and then like the NFT people, I think that was, a, yeah, that was definitely a good timing moment for me because I had really reached that point where I was like, we need an injection of like fresh, fresh, interesting perspectives yeah. here. And it was very, it was a lot of fun just to meet people who just came along and said, you know, I'm going to leave all the, all the technical side is fine, but actually we, we want to make this like, we want aesthetics involved in some kind of way. Yeah. And we have, yeah, and the in real world events. So what, there's this, this thing that people say every so often, which is that at this point, crypto's main product is probably like the conferences. And there's like a community of conferences that you can go around and complain about like crypto's not really doing what it should. Mm-hmm. And um, like I think the NFT community is the one that really, you know, they, they really kicked off that. Or at least they're, they're, that, that seems to be around the time that you really start to see that. Yeah, well, their events were way more fun, that, that's for sure. Sorry, that, that's what I should have said. Yeah, the more fun injection of the events. They, they used to be, you know, just like developer talks and, and things like that. Um, so I would say there are projects like that, but they're, they're difficult to, to find if you're a newcomer. So another article, I'm rereading my articles for like a kind of reflection article. And it's called The Trash Mo, which I wrote a few years ago. Uh, It's about how with with the crypto experience for most newcomers, most retail people, is that you you immediately find yourself, like you're trying to get to the castle, which is where all the the good things are. You know, it's where some of the projects I'll mention in a moment exist. And people, like maybe someone has told you of all the good things that exist in crypto. But in order to get there, you have to cross this moat. And if you fall in at any point, then like you're going to like drown, you know, like it's, it's guaranteed. And, all, and that's a pretty big moat. It's a moat of, you know, cyber criminals trying to get you to click, to click shady links. It's ads on Twitter trying to get you to click a fake airdrop claim. It's, yeah, meme coins, which are, you know, the a- information asymmetry is designed to get your money. L- lots of people like you to put $50, $50 in and then the person who created it to extract $500,000. So everything is really ranged against you. But if you can get past that, then you might begin to encounter what it is that excites the people who I think are genuinely interesting. And for me, that's good. That's always in places that the, the main place I, I think of as the representing this is probably Gitcoin. So Gitcoin is a, a DAO with a mission, which I think it can be seen as objectively positive. It's funding public goods in the Ethereum ecosystem. It sticks to that mission pretty well. It, it manages to consistently perform that mission successfully without much drama. There's occasional drama, like there was a shell round a few years ago, or a year or so ago, but not, nothing too big. And there, the DAO, like the DAO discussions are not really, they don't have that edge to them. They're, they're friendly enough. Now they might disagree on things, but you don't get the, they're not dunking on each other. You might find like in a DeFi forum or somewhere, somewhere like that. So I think Gitcoin is my my main example that I like to give to people as to what a DAO should look like or what we should be doing. And the other internet collective, they wrote an article talking about, the article is about them almost like falling out of love with crypto because they were, at least that's how I read it. I, I mentioned this to them that I saw it very pessimistic, whereas they were, I guess, just giving their critique. So like one of the things that they were saying is one of our way backs or one of the way that ways that crypto could get back would be to start doing more positive in the real world instead of getting increasingly digital. So we're going, we seem to be, we're lost in our own digitality. We're, we're lost in our own uh, increasingly meta, increasingly mimetic, obscure meme coins yeah. and NFT projects, self-referential stuff that nobody outside is ever going to have a clue about. 
And so something like Gitcoin could conceivably be funding, you know, real world stuff. Like they could be creating decentralized versions of things that exist, services that exist in the real world. Griff Green makes this argument quite a bit as well. And then in terms of like what a blockchain community should look like, I think Optimism is probably a pretty good example of this, where again, they have this, you know, it's it's a community that they're building their blockchain. And I don't even necessarily agree with like their 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 model or even their their whole vibe. You know, it's probably a bit too optimistic for me personally. But I do really uh, admire and appreciate the the retroactive uh, funding of people like say Zach XBT, where they're they're picking out things that are helping people in the community through their DAO governance system and rewarding people pretty substantially. There's a guy I know who makes a YouTube channel that I've been following for years, and it's a small channel. And you know, he was he he, he was he just put in a a, a grant. And then he got like 20,000 OP tokens, you know, which is, I don't know, like $60,000 maybe or something like that. So optimism, that retroactive focus, and like they're, they're not funding, like they're not helping, you know, shady DeFi projects. And I think that's good. It means the people who are building good things are getting appreciated and don't feel that they're the suckers, basically. And then finally, yeah. one I would maybe mention is Farcaster, because Farcaster is a good example of you know, we, we were reliant on crypto Twitter, which is a web to prof, uh, a web to web to platform. The dynamics of that platform have shaped how we discuss and how we interact with each other in very negative ways. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Debate, the debate, all the debates that we had against each other, Solana versus Ethereum, like should like that wouldn't happen in the old versions that we had, which were discussion forums and then Reddit. There was some of that, but not nearly at the accelerated pace where it's so easy to dunk on someone and gain followers for being an Ethereum maxi or Solana maxi or Bitcoin maxi. And yeah. um, then also the ad, like all the, the scams are also very facilitated by this. And then you see with Farcaster, which is a, as close to an Ethereum you know, a social media platform that, I, that I've encountered, you even see very quickly that once that happens, you then get a new like kind of mini primitive, which is frames. I think that only happens on something like Farcaster, where all the Ethereum people are in a positive environment and they're not thinking about other people and like, you know, dunking on other people. And so people begin thinking of, okay, maybe we can be a bit more creative. So yeah, that I, I yeah, have a little bit of faith in Farcaster. I, to, I have to I have to check it out because from the decentralized social media lens protocol is what I've I'm yeah, I've been relatively active at. Yeah, and lens, lens as well, I would see in the same category as like the, the yeah. right, right direction. Yeah. For that same reason, right? Because it's kind of, I've been experimenting with both and kind of posting exactly the same thing, both on Twitter mm -hmm. and on Lens. And unlike, Lens, you know, Twitter on Lens, I don't have so many followers and kind of it's, I haven't been that engaged. But even like that, you can see, first of all, the vibe difference, which is great. But also apart from the vibe difference, the, the I don't know, like the, because of the difference of the algorithm, you can see the difference in the engagement like you know you post this exactly the same thing twelve thousand followers on twitter you get 10 likes and one retweet and then you know 1000 followers on lens and you get about 30 something or 50 something likes and you know some collects and you know retweets and mirrors and all that stuff so to me it's like oh my god like here i haven't even put any effort in 
And I'm getting rewarded so much by that whole engagement and reactions and genuine non-toxic people. Here, you're grinding so much to be relevant or be visible. And still, like everything else, puts you down. So to me, it's like no-brainer where you should put your time and effort. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah. yeah. And I mean, like you're... Like the, the the thing about something like Twitter, which is this like very, I mean, Lens and Farcast are also global in the sense anybody could in theory be, you know, join and look at your profile, but they're clearly communities that are designed for like web tree, tree people to hang out. But in Twitter, your your audience is, even though you might not mean it, it is kind of forced to be global in a way. You're, you're always kind of aware, I think, that you're, you're like a tweet is something very, very, very public. And I think it makes you, I think you become more of a character on Twitter, the main, like the main character fear that people talk about. But I think you're performing more on Twitter because you, it's a global community. Whereas I would say the, the version of the internet that I definitely preferred and that I think we should be working our way back to was when you were in a smaller community and you had like a shared interest. So you were still meeting people from all over the world. So that's still a good thing. But it's not like literally everybody, you know, it's you're, you're, you're you have a. Yeah, really, it, it's really more like interest. a filtered, like-minded people where obviously it's kind of, you know, it's easier. And I think in our case, you know, from people who are genuinely interested in the sphere and, and have been around for quite a while, part of that is because I, I don't know many people who actually in their real life among their friends and family have people who are interested in that stuff, right? So, so very often, you may be super passionate and super excited about something and tell a story and they would look at you and they would not really get like what are you even excited about like okay yeah so what and 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 you start gravitating towards okay let me go online and talk to these people who actually get mm -hmm. it kind of thing so i think that the, there is this element as well that we are we have all been looking for like-minded people who actually get it and you don't have to go ahead and explain it so much and then get that kind of you know neutral reaction you're looking for something like for people who are equally passionate about that. Can we go back to the article that actually reconnected us? <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, Vitalik wrote at the end of the year an article called Make Ethereum Cyberfunk Again. Mm -hmm. And I think that it was nice to, to read it and understand that with all that madness, with everything that we spoke about and, and, and the way things were developing, actually, he hasn't forgotten like the, the why and, and the, the actual sort of, you know, starting point or why it was all created and what's, what was the purpose behind it. And yes, many things probably changed since then, but, you know, he still wants to bring people back to, to that sort of, you know, to, yeah, to the core meaning of, of why it was all around. So, so can you maybe like, you know, most probably people who watch this will, will not really, may not even be familiar about that whole kind of, you know, about the thing that he's trying to remind them because they didn't even know about it from the very beginning. What is it? Yeah. So the, Always the most interesting thing from my like from my teachings and when I'm in the classroom is where students are have been very interested in crypto maybe for a year or two and that's that's why they take the class and or even if I'm doing a general public talk 
a lot of people are like more, it's more and more common for people to be surprised to learn about why crypto was created in the first place or actually why Bitcoin was created because crypto wasn't invented, uh, Bitcoin was, and then crypto, you know, kind of expanded from out of it. But the, the early community that he's referencing are the, the cypherpunks. So it's a C-Y-P-H-E-R instead of a cyberpunks like the, the game. But there's the similar aesthetic. So the, the, the cyberpunk, in the in like traditional literature traditional sci-fi is a kind of hacker character who's opposed to some like corporate or dystopian government and then a cypherpunk was like kind of like the real version of of cyberpunks you know they they really existed and they were around in the 1980s i said they started in around the 1980s and they're basically just people who were interested in encryption and you know cybersecurity those kinds of issues with a very strong emphasis on on privacy and anonymity and they were very tech-oriented people, mostly based in California already. And some of them had worked for you know, major companies already. So they knew what, the, what direction things were going in, very prescient about over time what was going to happen with the internet, which at that time was decentralized. It would slowly become more and more centralized in the hands of a small number of companies. Those companies would misbehave by you know, st- stealing your data, monetizing your data, what we call today surveillance capitalism. So how do you make money off people on the internet today? You don't really have to make them pay for anything. You just need their data so you can sell the, the data. So the cyberpunks were people interested in that back in the 80s. And the the little culture that they had was mostly, it has this interesting aspect to it, which is they believe, this is the punk part of it, I guess. They didn't believe that you could convince a government to you know put like the, a law which would solve the problem. Like, don't lobby governments. Don't try to, you know, do that kind of like traditional stuff. Although they did it, they did a bit of, you know, activism as well. But the real approach was you should write the code yourself. So cypherpunks write code. So you should create the software yourself and then release it for free and then allow people to download it so that they can then do things like encrypt their email. So PGP was created by the cypherpunks, pretty good privacy. Tor, which people probably have heard of, the, you know, the darknet browser, BitTorrent. Is another example. So that file sharing thing, all of this is like the cypherpunks creating this software, releasing it for free, and then hoping that by people using it, that would increase the amount of privacy that people had available. So it's giving people the option via the technology, as opposed to say trying to convince Facebook or, or uh, X and Meta, as they're now called, to, to ethical <laughs> to become ethical, right? So yeah, the presumption is they're not going to be ethical, so we're going to do it ourselves, and then. Like money was the big thing that they they also were interested in because money, of course, is very revealing. They they could they could see as well that we were going to end up with a situation where physical cash would slowly be phased out, the cash of the society, and so there would be a need for a digital cash. And so that's where that's where Satoshi comes in. The cypherpunk mailing list is where they all hang out. They try to make versions of Bitcoin like people like Nick Zabo or Adam Back that people may have heard of who are often candidates. Hal Finney, the, the, another uh, big name here, they would have hung out on this message board. And that's the message board that Satoshi sends the, the white paper to. So he's, he, he sent that message to a very, very particular audience of the, of the cypherpunks. And although the cypherpunks, they, they wouldn't have formalized these values in the same way. They, did, they, they weren't yet... There wasn't yet something like Bitcoin that cypherpunk was heavily associated with. It was definitely a super obscure movement, you know, but maybe like if you are really, really hardcore about software and open source, then you may know what cypherpunk is before Bitcoin. 
But once we get into the Bitcoin era and then with Ethereum as well, people begin to formalize the, the different values, like what are cypherpunk values. And I would say, uh, although Vitalik gives, gives more of them, I would say the core ones are decentralization, which is, of course, the, the biggest one. Power shouldn't be concentrated in a, you know, a small, like a single entity or a small entity or some kind of coalition of powerful entities. It said should be distributed as widely as possible. Permissionlessness, again, which can be, a, you know, we, we know to be, is here seen as a good value, but has a dark side, which is you, nobody should be able to deny you permission to use the protocol. So Ethereum should be decentralized, should be permissionless. The other one is censorship resistance, right? Nobody should be in a position to censor transactions. Again, something that's being called into uh, contention with OFAC and Tornado Cash. And then credible neutrality, which is actually Vitalik's creation. So this is the idea that in theory, like people should be able to look at how the protocol is designed and know that it doesn't favor anybody in particular. So like the design of the Ethereum protocol or the Bitcoin protocol or Solana, like even if it should be the case that if you're a user, you look at it and see like nobody can do something that I myself couldn't do. So I could be a validator if I wanted, or I could be a miner. And like what they're doing, it doesn't seem unfair to me that what they're doing is like an outside, outsized, you know, benefit. So the idea is that it's, you know, neutral in, and people, and also importantly that people like credibly believe that. And then like um, Vitalik throws in a couple of other ones, like uh, cooperative mindset and the building tools, not empires. So, you know, instead of getting into the the desire to create some kind of empire. I think his vision is really around, it's classic cypherpunk, build the tools and then get them distributed as widely as possible. So I think he's got something like at this stage where he's aware of the, the negative influences that he's going back to, okay, what, what good can, can be done regardless of that? And what can be done is really the cypherpunk approach of you build the good stuff, like the Gitcoins, the Farcasters, the public goods. He's also interested in things like ZooPass, which is like a zero knowledge identity, a whole bunch of projects, mm. and then distribute them as widely as possible. And then maybe that will offset the effects of the, the DGEN culture. So I, I would also, I would say in my, from my perspective at this point, crypto's enemy is not traditional finance or traditional institutions. It's actually crypto itself. It's the DGENs are the yeah. new internal enemy and i think that's that's kind of what he's going for yeah because that internal enemy actually keeps kind of no matter how ironic this sounds but gate keeps it keeps the masses from coming in yeah basically exactly, that, yeah. you know by their behavior by their reputation by being so scary and toxic and and all that stuff because like every time you try to quote unquote onboard an army into the space they encounter stuff that is not everyone is comfortable with right they are overwhelmed with uh, the whole craziness it's very hard to to even know which sources of information are credible who to follow who to listen to it's like a whole noise it's it's dangerous they 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 are scared to touch anything to click anything opening the wallet is a nightmare just a simple first step of doing things so it's it's kind of yeah it feels like all in theory sounds really great and anyone can enter but can anyone enter though like from the practical and and real life experience perspective that is the problem and what do you think like when are we gonna make it easier to use for for people who are not so um, brave, let's say. <laughs> yeah, I, I, the, the image that I, I've been going for here is it's similar. You know, if you, you know, if someone comes to visit your city and, you know, uh, you're, 
Um, even if your city is like relatively safe, you feel this sort of responsibility where you're, you know, making sure that they don't go somewhere that's a bit yeah. shady and like they could go into that shop and, you know, get money out of there. But actually it's like maybe just like not the best place and you want to show them like the safer version of things. Like that's how I feel it's like with crypto. You're 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 basically holding the hand of some some person that you're showing around somewhere you know to have dark kind of like spaces. And I'd say when it comes to crypto, it's definitely like a dangerous scene. You know, it's 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 somewhere. It's like you're living somewhere dangerous, and 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 the person you're you're bringing is coming from a maybe like a a, a place where law is like a lot clearer, and there's more police yeah, so around. So their guards are down. They are not used to this. Yeah, yeah, um, a bit naive. Yeah, they think it, all the time. Yeah, and 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 they don't realize that you're kind of like basically the police for a little bit because you're a local who's making sure nothing happens to them. So I, I do think I, I like the city analogy quite a bit these days. That it's, Ethereum is a city, so like downtown is like DeFi. That are, you've got like your you know, sorry, DeFi is like Wall Street, and then downtown is maybe like where the cyber criminals are hanging out. You have got your Bohemian district for the art, and then the government is like the Ethereum developers, you know, things like that. So yeah, I don't. I, this question of like when I, I so I have two views on it. Like one is I have argued before in the past, and I quite like strongly probably at this point that I would be okay with Ethereum being a subculture if it could like recognize that. Like, so if Ethereum could say to itself that actually what you're talking about here is not something where you're onboarding everybody in and that actually it might not be for everybody. And so it's a, it's a subculture, which in some way is a, a hyper like specialist area where if you are willing to put in long hours and you uh, kind of are willing to learn about the dangers, then there might be profit in it. And if it was, if it was more honestly portrayed like that, then I would actually probably be okay with it. You know, I, I would be okay with say if DeFi was more explicitly recognized as that. But I think for that to happen, probably the best outcome would be if crypto started to branch off. Like, so if DeFi became its own thing, if NFTs became their own thing, and then if, let's say, public goods and regen were separated and they begin to differentiate themselves clearer so that people know what they're getting into and they're not just coming into some uh, nebulous thing called crypto. Because at this point, really, uh, let, let's say from a teaching perspective where you have to teach, so I have like 12 classes to fill and you can imagine, you know, you're trying to cover crypto, like it's too much, you know, there's too much going classes. on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it's, it's, gone be, it's gone beyond that. So at some point in the future, I'll be able to do DAOs because it will be enough content. And I think we're getting there. So I do I, one, one solution, I think, is almost the anti-solution. It's like the, that's the fracturing solution. Actually, what we should do is kind of like become like federalized. So we're, we're like a states in the United States or something. We've got a government yeah. called Ethereum, but actually we're all doing our own thing. And then actually there's a huge difference between someone living in Texas and someone living in New York, even though they're both in. Like, yeah, crypto. I do like it because it's it's very logical because the communities are so different as well. Like, you know, as yeah. I said, like, you know, I've, I've been I, I've been working full time in the space for about seven years. And also like my personal interests with this podcast, with the NFT art that I'm creating and some other things, uh, Twitter spaces that I'm, I'm uh, having, it, you know, it's it's the personal side of things. And and the people that I engage with for the job and then, you know, in the space, in the social media, for the podcast, et cetera, podcast audience, Twitter spaces audience, it's all very different and very diverse. They are like each other, but in each vertical. So like, you know, being able to engage with and interact with these different groups, you can really feel the difference and the difference is very big. So yeah. it's, 
what you're saying totally makes sense because it's a different group of people with different interests, different passions. They care about different things. So even if you would like to address them all, you, you can't do it the same way. So it, uh, yeah, tailoring it would be better. I, I agree with you there. Yeah. And I mean, I, I experienced this quite often because as someone who is probably like fairly close, I would say, as you can get in, in this day and age, purely based on just the fact that it's it's my job to do this. So I, I don't think this is a, a normal thing that people are, are capable of. Not like they could do it in theory, but the amount of time that it requires to like, you know, sit around. Like all, all I do all day is like read about Ethereum, but I'm paid to do it. So it's different than what yeah. most people, most people are working on something and then they, they it's sort of like more like a hobby. And I would yeah. say even in that situation where I'm able to kind of more or less keep track of everything, it's an impossible, it's an impossible ta- uh, task. And it, and it really strains the, the concept of like a unified overarching uh, message that someone is really getting into. So I, I do think it would be beneficial uh, f- uh, to everyone and including myself, like I'm really looking forward to the day where I can legitimately begin saying that I only do X or something, you know, like to my department. Which one like, did where, you pick? Um, okay. I think DAOs, I think DAOs are probably the yes. one that, yeah, I think okay. DAOs are, uh, I think DAOs just appeal to the academic minds. You know, there's like a lot of governance, uh-huh. like discussion forums and documents, and but most people don't. And there is still it. a lot of room to to go, so it's just the beginning. So there will be lots of developments to to follow with the DAOs, I guess. Uh, so that makes sense. So since you've been reading so much and you kind of you know know so much about Ethereum, I guess it would be logical to wrap this up by how do you imagine? How is Ethereum going to develop further? What is it going to be like in the future? At least what's the aim? Kind of, you know, where does it need to go? Um, yeah, so, I mean, the there's like two different end games here. So Vitalik actually used this phrase in a blog post for I thought they were referencing that, which is the, the end game. And then there's also the roadmap. So I think he's really good at picking these, these terms, which are very evocative, like the roadmap and the end game. Sounds like a a sci-fi series or something like that. So I see the technical endgame is its own complicated story, but it's all very manageable, I think. Like, so if you are interested in this kind of thing, so like if you're like technically inclined, you can definitely see everything on the roadmap eventually being uh, either accomplished or people realize the limits of, like it can't be done and removed, but like navigating around it in some kind of way. Mm So the the Ethereum developers at this point, I would say are like exceptional at what they're doing. So I have no real worries about, will will the experience of using Ethereum in the future be a situation where like I'm using a wallet and I'm a normal person who doesn't know about gas and, you know, the, the kind of like nitty gritty of wallets and the wallet will be, like it intends this new idea of, you know, you're basically like almost like human readable transactions that will like follow like your desire. I want to do something on a DeFi protocol and it kind of like automates it. The warnings, you can see this in new wallets like Rabi where they, they have warnings about everything. They're telling you what's happening contextually. So they're not just like letting you click on anything. They're saying... Which is very useful they- for normal people who can't read code, right? Yeah, and and the, even when you're using a new DeFi exchange, you will you have to like agree to to allow uh, it to interact with you. So there's there, there's a new focus there. Okay, you can't just build something and expect people to figure this out. It's all being embedded in the wallets. And then there's more interesting things like in the more interesting maybe to 
uh, protocol people, people who have interest in the protocol like myself, like staking, all those things are going to be uh, addressed, I think. But then, so I think Ethereum as an infrastructure will recede into the background in a way which is really good. As in, it's going to be it's going to be closer to what we consider something like there's this, all the, all these this hype language of you know Ethereum, like Ethereum is like the new internet or Web three, but I do think it will reach a status of there will be so much being built on it at that point that I do believe it would have that kind of status. It won't be as, obviously as big as the internet. I think that's the that's another example of where people need to kind of limit their expectations. But it will be kind of like a internet, like a mini internet or something, and I think it will work pretty well. But then the social, the other end game, the the end game, the, the is the the one that I that I would worry about, which is we have a roadmap for where where we could recognize Ethereum more or less ending. Say ten years from now, you, there there is kind of an idea of like what Ethereum ossified would look like, as in most of the problems would be dealt with that you could normally conceive of. And then but we don't have a sense of what the the, the the social side of Ethereum would look like. And then some people, you know, would have a view that this should just be emergent, you know, so this should just kind of like naturally happen. You can't dictate culture. And that's that's true to a certain extent. But I do think I do have like a worry that like what we might like, it's very, very conceivable that in 10 years, Ethereum is like the world's most complex casino you know, like it's just, it's like people will look back at it and say that like they won't even have any idea of what it, that there was competing applications it will just be the pure degeneracy, almost like you're walking into one of those, you know, you see a picture of old people in Las Vegas and they're all like clicking the slot machine at the same time and just spending their money like that. That's a possibility. Yeah. I think that that's a possibility because also like, which are the stories that actually resonate with people, right? Like no one is going to talk about, oh, you know what? Like they rolled out the second version or the layer two or whatever and, and come up with sort of technical explanations of what it is because that kind of doesn't really excite like normal people. But, you know, the story is like, oh, you know what? Like I bought this monkey picture for $200 and then I sold it for 500000 is the stories that people will be telling each other. So that's kind of, you know that's the after effect of okay and if those are the stories that people tell then what kind of people are going to be attracted to it right who are going to come people who are going to play casino right so the, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately uh, that's the way it goes yeah like that that's that's my i guess that's my pessimistic one like my optimistic view would be that you start to see like let's say from the more like the gitcoin optimism farcaster kind of culture that at some point people do begin, like, it, it, I think that the key to everything is escaping the digital side of it. The digital side is the casino and the speculation because that's what, like, the it's it's frictionless speculation. That That's that's all you're getting from that. So I think only if you begin to see, or I would be happiest if I began to see, like, decentralized analogs to things that exist in the world already. So instead of just having, like, NFT projects, that there's some kind of, like, the gallery itself is run as a DAO. And there's retroactive public goods funding and that this is actually competing for people's attention in the in the physical world and drawing a community from the physical world that's more static and has ties to, to real places. And so it's less abstract. And I think the yeah, same thing with finance where, you know, instead of having a DeFi protocol, it's more like an app that people have on their phone, which allows them to do things out there in the world. Like the, the, the separation between say you're making money in a DeFi protocol, but you're not really able to use it in the real world is kind of like a, like it's a major yeah. kind of gap. How can it really be financed if you're not able to buy coffee with it kind of thing? And then, yeah, so seeing seeing that that the the slow 
the growth into the real world is my my optimistic take and that that becomes more appealing to people that actually I could be in the casino but if you, I think there because like that casino speculation thing I think that's like a that is a nihilistic reaction to people who don't really know like they don't know what to be doing so it's like I'll just become obsessed with trying to make money on meme coins whereas I think there's there is I'm not saying that this is always likely but there is the possibility that if you build build things that people that could attract people in a different direction that they're, they they might turn their head and say, actually, this is pointless. Like, what am I doing here? You know, try to get involved in the DAO that's building something in the real world. So that's my optimistic slash idealistic. Uh, Let's hope the optimistic one works out. I'm these seven years in the space made me way more sarcastic and ironic than I've been before. So I don't know like how optimistic I still have state <laughs> after mm. all these years and after seeing everything from very close viewpoint. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I guess the fact that we, we have seen all that, there are lots of people who have seen all that and are still sticking around because they still see hope of things changing in the future. Although you said not with this cycle. So we have to endure a few more years and another cycle and probably end up with another crypto winter. But, but still like, you know, long term when you're looking at it and, and the potential and, and, and overall, like, you know, it's, it's kind of, we've been here for quite a long time and it's just, it will be a pity to leave now. Right. So <laughs> before we see that optimistic scenario working out. So, so yeah, let's still stick around and see what happens and, and try to contribute however we can. Like I can't write, re, you know, write code, but I do some other stuff and then the coders can still code and then we'll see what comes out of it. And hopefully we'll have more soulful projects out there that succeed and that would probably inspire other soulful projects to emerge as a result. So I think the problem with soulful projects is we didn't really have like that one super successful one to look out for, right? Because like overall, whatever was happening, people were looking at something that succeeded and were trying to replicate that success. And uh, just like, you know, with 10,000 PFP projects, like, you know, they looked at board apes and they're like, okay, let's become the next board ape. So what if that successful thing wasn't a board ape? but was something so full, meaningful, public good or whatever it was. And then that became a massive success. Then more of that type of projects would be inspired and would like to, to get there because they will see it's possible. For now, no one has seen any of that yet, uh, which is a problem. I think that's one of the problems that it doesn't work. Yeah, the, 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 the kind of awkward thing here is you have to try to get the person to think like, the person who created the Board Ape Yacht Club, rather than copying the Board Ape Yacht Club, you have to that that level of creativity is what uh, is required, and um, it's it's easier to just copy the project. But if you try to put yourself in the shoes of you know they're 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 creating the the framework, so whether yeah. it's creating BIOC or, or CryptoPunks, that that that's actually really what will make you like the mega rich person. Yeah, and also Any think person. like what is. What is the purpose of it? What are you trying to change? What are you bringing? Like, what is the value of it? Because, you know, if you do it for the sake of doing it, obviously, like, there is no substance there. Like, now all these PFP projects are trying to find their new ways of what they are going to be about because, you know, uh, there was nothing underneath, like, no, 
like no thoughtful process, no business, no no service, no product, nothing. So so yeah, I guess that too. But let's let's hope we'll for the optimistic scenario and let's also hope that we will be around to to experience it ourselves firsthand because you know, if you've gone through that as you know, you mentioned through that hurdle and through all those challenges to get there, uh, at least you should get to that point to be able to see it. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for for the time. I truly appreciate that. I my main worry was that we might have ended up having very deep technical discussion, which I wouldn't be able to navigate, but I'm very happy at the level that we stayed. So thank you for that. Yeah, I, I know I have learned to know from teaching my, like if, if someone doesn't bring up technical themselves, then you don't bring it up because, you know, they, they it's otherwise it becomes like a whole different conversation of, of you trying to find analogies to explain something. So and thanks for having me on. Thank you very much. That's all that I've got for you today. If you want more of my content, please check out my newsletter at anealexander.com backwards slash subscribe. And I'll see you in the next episode.